Welcome to the Politics of Truth with me, Bob Crawford. This program is brought to you by Osiris, a network run by music fans for music fans. The goal of this weekly program is to empower our listeners with the information they need to make informed decisions as they follow and vote in the 2020 elections, be it the state primaries, caucuses, or the general election in November. Once again this week, our focus has shifted from the 2020 campaign to the COVID-19 crisis that's reshaping every dimension of Americans' lives, while reminding many voters about the importance of political leadership in uncertain times. First, I speak with Robert Costa, national political reporter for The Washington Post and host of PBS's Washington Week, about how life as a connected reporter changes in a disconnected world as millions shelter in place. How should we follow the changing messages coming from the White House as all 50 states respond to the virus? How can we plan for a resumption of normal activities when the effects of an economic shutdown are only starting to ripple across entire industries? And how will a Democratic nominee emerge from a primary process that's been stopped in its tracks by social distancing? I also spoke with Mark Brownstein basis for the Disco Biscuits and co-founder of the National Voter Registration Organization Headcount, which has registered more than 600,000 new voters at concerts and festivals since 2004. The Disco Biscuits canceled their shows the moment the virus took hold in the U.S. and, like countless other musicians, are trying to adjust to a new paradigm without live events for a while. Mark explains how he used that moment as an opportunity to quickly launch a new product. LiveLessonMasters.com, which enables musicians as well as wellness experts, chefs, and others to link with fans for virtual lessons that foster a real connection between the artist and their supporters on an individual level. It's been an inspiration for me personally, and I hope it speaks to you all, wherever you are. Robert Costa, welcome to The Politics of Truth. Bob, it's great to be with you. Thank you so much. Uh, and for our listeners, this is take two. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> so uh, I reveal everything. We're very genuine here on the uh, politics. As you should be. Because it's the politics of truth. It is. Stick to the truth, Bob. If, if I don't have the truth, what do I have? So, so true. Bob Costa, you are a shoe leather reporter. You walk the beat. You're on Capitol Hill all the time. You're at the White House. You're traveling. You're you're covering campaigns. You're at rallies. That's all gone. That's over with. How has your life changed as a reporter in the age of COVID? And how are you keeping those sources so fresh? You still seem to have that lead. You still seem to have the story that is breaking in the moment. Mm -hmm. How are you keeping those sources? Well, Bob, everything has changed in so many ways. It was just a few weeks ago. I was in Burlington, Vermont, for a few days covering Senator Bernie Sanders and members of the band Fish. We're playing a few songs for the senator. There was a rally in his home city on Lake Champlain. But that was just a few weeks ago. And it feels like a different world because my entire life as a reporter has changed since that time in Burlington. Everything now is the pandemic. It's put the campaign on a shelf. Vice President Biden and Senator Sanders remain in the race, but we're not covering them in the same way we did just a few weeks ago. It's all about President Trump in Congress, and we're doing it from home most days. So instead of going to the Capitol and the White House, which is my style to get in people's faces, put a microphone in their face or pull them aside and really have a conversation, I've had to retreat and talk on the phone every day. Uh, and it's call after call. And you're trying to dig into where is President Trump going? And it's a thrill in a sense as a reporter even though the story is tragic because every day it's changing. And I've written front page story after front page story about where is President Trump trying to go? Where does he want to go? Where are his health advisors telling him the country needs to go? And so it's a turbulent story, Bob. On Saturday, I'm writing about how President Trump is dying to open the country by Easter. Then on Sunday, I'm covering President Trump when he says we're actually going to go to April 30th to keep all the federal guidelines in. It's so fast paced and uh, it's really a White House in Washington story. But it's different, Bob, to talk to people on the phone because it's not the same kind of dynamic. You're trying to reach people when they're home with their own families. It's delicate at times to report it all out. 
Yeah, I can say uh, as the uh, father of two young children who are now being homeschooled, it is hard to even do things like this, like you and I speaking right now. Yesterday in the Rose Garden, uh, you have a colleague, Yamish Alcindor, who works for PBS NewsHour, and you also have a show, Washington Week, on PBS. So you guys are close colleagues. And she asked President Trump about comments he made last week on Sean Hannity's show about believing that the amount of ventilators needed by New York, Governor Cuomo there in New York, asking for ventilators. And the president thought that was a ridiculous request and and downplayed it and said most hospitals only have one ventilator. And he always gives Yamish a a hard time. Uh, He seems to have something against her uh, in some way. But she stuck to her guns. And he completely denied what we all heard him say. Like, I'm going to play right now those clips back to back, and our listeners will hear for themselves. New York is a a bigger deal, but it's going to go also. But I have a feeling that uh, a lot of the numbers that are being said in some areas are just bigger than they're going to be. I don't believe you need 40,000 or 30,000 ventilators. You've said repeatedly that you think that some of the equipment that governors are requesting, they don't actually need. You said New York might need, I, I might not need 30,000. You said it on Sean Hannity's Fox News. You said you know, that why you don't, might. Why don't you some, people act? Let me ask you. You said why some don't state, you act, Why don't you act in a little more positive? It's always trying to my get question you. To you. Get is, you, get you. And you know what? That's why nobody trusts the media anymore. My That's question why to you people, is, how is that going to impact? Excuse me, you didn't hear me. That's why you used to work for the Times and now you work for somebody else. Look, let me tell you something. Be nice. Don't Mr. Be President, threatening. my question Don't is... Don't be threatening. Be nice. Go my ahead. My question is, how is that going to impact how you fill these orders for ventilators or for masks? Your views that they're, they're not, you're not going to... It's not going to impact you at all. We're producing tremendous numbers of ventilators. We're doing a great job on it. Mike Pence, our vice president, has headed up the task force, which has been incredible, the job they've done. So you hear the president just... He, he just completely says he didn't say what we all heard him say. You know, he's been like that his whole presidency. It all started with a crowd size. So so how how does he maintain that credibility in the moment we're in right now? Yamiche Alcindor is a terrific reporter, and she has not only been a stalwart colleague, uh, being on the front lines at the White House, talking to people in power, asking them tough questions. She's also been a friend. She's a friend to Washington Week. She's a regular, perhaps more than anyone really, in recent weeks. She's been sitting with me at the table or remote from her home, trying to tell the story. And what you see in Yamiche Alcindor is someone who was working hard to stay cool, but to also ask the questions that need to be asked. And the questions she are, she's asking are important because it, it gets to the nub of what the tension is between governors and President Trump. President Trump has so far said he's provided certain things to states in terms of medical supplies, but he has not formally and fully used what we call the the Defense Production Act, this national law which enables the federal government to effectively prod companies and force companies to produce medical supplies. And as governors continue to scramble for materials, they are frustrated and they're saying to President Trump and others, we need more masks, we need more ventilators. And President Trump, to make those kind of remarks, uh, it it has alienated some governors. In fact, in recent days, I've spoken with Governor Tony Evers of Wisconsin, and he said he can't take his cues anymore from President Trump on the timeline to reopen the country. He's looking at business leaders and local leaders because the credibility of the White House in Governor Evers' eyes, he's a Democrat in Wisconsin, is so low that he feels like he needs to tread his own path. And others like Mike DeWine, a Republican from Ohio, have told me over the phone that they want to see business reopen like President Trump, but they too have to listen to their doctors, health professionals in their state. Uh, And so what we're going to be seeing over the coming days and weeks is this continued tension between a federal government that is mobilized, but the extent to which it's mobilized is going to be a point of debate. What more could it be doing in terms of forcing companies to produce things? and other options. The the problem for a lot of these companies though, Bob, is that if you're a GM or you're Ford or you're an auto company and you want to make a ventilator, it just doesn't happen with the snap of your finger. You have to one, bring workers back to factories that have been closed because of the threat of spread. A lot of these workers are told not to come to work 
because of fear of coronavirus, understandably, like any American who's in a busy workplace being told to stay home. You need to get them back. How do you get them back safely? That's a challenge. How do you figure out how to make ventilators in an effective way, a cost effective way, a fast way uh, in car factories? These aren't ventilator factories they're car factories. And so many things are now manufactured abroad that it's not easy for a lot of American companies just to do this in the time that's really necessary for them to do it. I think a lot of our listeners, obviously, they're concerned about their health and the health of their loved ones. Uh, but they're also concerned about the money that they're no longer making from the jobs they no longer have. Now, we had a stimulus passed last week. Everyone's going to get some kind of a, of a check uh, that'll hold them over for a little while. But I, I think our listeners would love to know, you know, if this thing goes till June 1st, uh, you know, the president talked about maybe starting to open up the country on June 1st, which sounds kind of reasonable. How are they going to make it from May? You know, April's maybe covered, uh, but how are they going to make it in May and then possibly June and beyond? It's a very sad time. As you know, I was talking to a few friends over the weekend who work in the music industry, in the concert industry, and live music has just been decimated by this entire development, not only for artists like yourself who are eager to play to your fans and your audience, but if you're a bartender or you work in ticketing, these are jobs that are seasonal. They're not often salaried. So even if employees are kept around, if they have a salary, if you're not a salaried employee, at some of these venues or companies, you're out of your, your luck right now. It's a difficult moment. The government is providing direct payments in the coming weeks to people who need it, over $1,000. But the challenge for the American economy, based on my conversations with economists, is that that money will come into people's hands. But to get the economy moving again, people need to spend it. And there is some worry that people are so hard for cash right now. They may keep that money in the bank, hold on to that money instead of spending it. And the economy's dying for them to spend it. Uh, based on my conversations too with uh, congressional sources, Bob, they, there's probably going to be a phase four economic rescue bill in the coming weeks. But the challenge for Congress is what more can they really do? $2 trillion. And you have the Federal Reserve providing $4 trillion in support in terms of loans and loan guarantees. So you have about $6 trillion that's available now for the economy. But if restaurants continue to be closed and concert venues continue to be closed, so many people are just going to be out of work and they're not going to have an income flow. And the, the, the problem for so many Americans, and I meet them as a reporter, is they don't have more than maybe one to three months of finances saved up. And what happens in June when you've used all that capital up. It's uh, And Congress can only do so much. You got to get the economy restarted. But President Trump showed on Sunday, even someone who's eager to get the re economy restarted like him, who keeps talking about Easter, he's being told by health professionals, 100,000 to 200,000 people may die. The spread has to be contained over the course of six to eight weeks, not just three to four weeks. And it may even be longer. And so I don't like to predict anything in terms of the economy, but it's going to be a rough road ahead. And my thoughts go out to people who are struggling out there. Yeah, I think about, uh, I think ahead to July, obviously we had shows starting this weekend. And so, you know, first everything in April was pushed into May and beyond. And now everything in May has been pushed into June and beyond. Uh, and I think uh, about those Red Rock shows as an example. So you have in July, we would do three nights at Red Rocks, sold out. 9,000 people a night. That's 27,000 people served in three nights. And they come from all over the country, maybe from other parts, you know, maybe from England, maybe, you know, who knows where they come from, but I know they come from all over the country. In July, is it really realistic to think that people will be able to, 9,000 people will be able to gather in close quarters, even in July? Aren't we thinking maybe this is going to be August or September? Maybe. I think about the bands who, who play 250, 250 seat, 500 seat venues. I could see them being able to get up, get out and play shows. I could see that happening. But I really, and I have no inside information on this, on Red Rocks. I'm just an out of work bass player uh, uh, gaming out my life like everyone else is gaming out their lives. But, you know, it would be amazing. And I am hopeful that we get to do shows like Red Rocks in July. But it's, you know, it's up in the air. You know, I think it's it's realistic to say it's up in the air, but we can hope and we can pray. 
We can. And, and I'm doing just that myself because, as you know, live music, it's part of the joy of life. And it really, to not have sports and to not have live music. But you know what? I thought about this, Bob, and I've said to myself, hey, I love going to concerts. I love going to baseball games and everything else. But people are not only struggling out there, people are dying. And this is a health crisis. It's an economic crisis. And so my own obstacles and, and burdens are minimal compared to what a lot of people in New York and New Orleans and Seattle are going through. And I, and it's just, you see the images of, of body bags and uh, of hospitals that are stretched thin. And I, I just keep thinking about the heroes out there, the nurses, the doctors, the police officers, and the food delivery people and the people at grocery stores and uh, everyone in the service industry who's still going to work trying to keep things clean. And uh, it, it really has reminded me about why politics is important, because regardless of whether you're right or left, leadership matters when there's times of crisis and who you elect, whether it's president, senator, congressman, a local official, it really matters uh, when there's a moment like this where you really need people to step up in positions of power. And it's reminding people that politics isn't a game, that it can seem like a game in partisan warfare many weeks of the year, many years, it can just seem like it's frivolous or just another people fighting about ideas. But then something happens out of the blue like this, whether it's the 08 recession or 9-11 or pandemic that's global in scale. And you're reminded that politics actually is vital to everything. And, you, and if, if you don't have a structure, if you don't have leadership, if you don't have a healthcare system that's functioning, if you don't have a national security apparatus that's functioning, if you don't have a society that's able to come together, you're going to have uh, uh, real problems. When did this come on your radar? COVID, did you hear anything, any any politician, any of your sources kind of start saying, you know, there's this thing and it's a, it's in China, but, you know, we're starting to get concerned here. Did you hear about that in January? I mean, did, w at what point did it really come up on the radar? It's been on my radar since January, and it was more of a economic story for many of my sources at first. I'll, I'll explain that briefly. I started hearing from people on Wall Street who are part of the donor community and the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. And they said, you have to pay attention to what's going on in Wuhan. And I said, well, what do you mean? They said, well, there's a, an emerging virus there, a respiratory illness that has shut down the entire city. So around mid to late January, I start paying close attention to the Financial Times, to CNBC. A lot of financial outlets were covering this because as China began to slow down because of coronavirus, you saw the global economy on edge, that so much uh, in terms of raw material product comes out of China, that you saw workers, because of the virus, staying home from factories. And that was an alarming, it was a red alarm for many global investors who thought, if China is shutting down cities, this has to be serious because China needs these factories to keep functioning, to keep its own economy afloat with billions of people. And it was an economic story. I didn't think through as a reporter that something that was in Wuhan, China, and w which was slowing the economy of China, uh, would become a, such a massive global story by March. Uh, I did not predict that, but I did see that it was it had the risk of breaking down the entire Chinese economy. When I saw Xi Jinping, the Chinese president, uh, really wary of going to Wuhan, and you saw the images out of Wuhan of bodies of uh, people in their homes, uh, people getting their temperatures taken uh, and, and being put in quarantine. You started to see the seriousness of it, but it's like everything, it seems removed until it's not. And I followed it as an economic story, but looking back, I wish I had thought about it more as an emerging global health story. Did any of, of your White House sources seem alarmed at any point in January? Well, we know in late January, President Trump began to be briefed about this at length. Uh, people on Capitol Hill began to get briefed about this. And so it was on the radar of Congress and the administration starting around late January into early February. They continued to get more and more briefings, and they were hoping that this thing would be contained. The idea of spread didn't start until late February, early March, in terms of it being a fear of, of the leadership in this country. Looking back, there's going to be books written, Bob, about what happened in February of 2020, because we know people were briefed extensively in late January 
And then this thing only starts to roar in the national consciousness in March. And what happened in February 2020 will be something that gets congressional investigation, media investigation. And the choices people made will also be under the spotlight. You think about Senator Richard Burr of North Carolina, Senator Kelly Loeffler of Georgia. They have been severely criticized by people in both parties for selling stock after being informed about the emerging coronavirus and the spreading coronavirus. They have both said they did not sell their stock in response to the briefings they received on Capitol Hill. But the fact that they even sold stock uh, as the country wasn't really up to speed uh, on everything on coronavirus has angered people. And so you see that is one part of the story. But it's really going to come down to just like we saw with 9-11. You remember all the presidential daily briefings that Congress investigated. What did the administration know about bin Laden, the coming threat? What did they do to prevent it, to respond? It's going to be something we all look back. But for now, we're just trying to get through day to day and find out where this virus is going and what leaders are doing. Seven weeks ago, you and I spoke about the Iowa caucus. And it was uh, that was the story. It was all about the campaign. That's what this was going to be all about every week. It seems frozen. I mean, Biden had such a head of steam a couple weeks ago coming out of the second Super Tuesday, even Florida, Arizona, Illinois voted. Bernie Sanders seemed to be done. His candidacy was over. And it may be uh, for all intents and purposes. But now the campaign is frozen. Neither Sanders nor Biden can get much oxygen. What do they need to do to stay relevant? And how do you see Sanders playing this out? He seems like he's in for the long haul. Vice President Biden, as we know, because we've seen him on television, has built this studio in his home in Delaware, and he's trying to do TV interviews day to day and to stay in the mix. But it's it's difficult for him. When you talk to his advisors, they, they're trying to make sure the campaign remains part of the national conversation. But it's President Trump out there hour after hour. And congressional leaders like Speaker Pelosi are essentially the face of the Democratic Party at this moment, more than Vice President Biden. And that's not a, a shot at the VP. It's just a snapshot of reality that there, he's not on the forefront of the, the debate. But he's also facing this curveball, which is because the campaign has receded, you see a lot of focus now on governors. And could Andrew Cuomo, some Democrats have amused, step in and be the Democratic nominee? Wait, that wait, kind of, whoa, 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 whoa. How would that happen at this point? It, it's hard to see it happening at all. So I'm a skeptic as a reporter that that would ever happen, Bob. But you do see it. Op-ed articles are written about it. And to me, that's a reflection of how there's a lot of anxiety in the Democratic Party, not about Biden every day and his ability, but an anxiety about President Trump's approval rating, about how this pandemic's going to unfold. Could it be the burden that takes down the Trump presidency because of the economy and the fallout? Or could it be something it helps him get reelected. It's a political variable at this point. No one has a, an answer to that question. But Biden has, he's going to likely be the nominee if the primary continues to play out as is. But your point about Senator Sanders, he's not going away. He remains someone who has a real political base in this country. And he has said he would back the, the nominee should it be Biden. But you're still seeing behind the scenes some work needs to be done by the Biden coalition, the Democratic establishment, to bring in that Sanders group by the time they have the convention. Hopefully they have the convention. I love covering conventions in Milwaukee this summer. Well, if they have the convention, in, it's in June, right? Middle, no, That's it's right. July. It's after Red Rocks. That's right. It's after Red Rocks. So if they're going to have the convention, maybe they'll have Red Rocks. I hope they have Red <laughs> Rocks and I hope they have the convention. I can't imagine not having Red Rocks for I you know, guys. I can't imagine it either. Let's go back to Cuomo just for a second and I will let you go. Because I watch Cuomo and I, I say, man... He's the voice we want to hear, like meaning emotionally and spiritually. He's he's benevolent. He's you know, I grew up Catholic and and there is like that, you know, I have an, a, a I'm not Italian, but I, I have a Catholic Italian aunt. And it just it's like that family, that voice, it just there's something so comforting about him and inspiring and FDR like in the sense of the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. We need that. FDR voice, that Winston Churchill voice to inspire us and to give us strength through these dark days. If he was a candidate at some point, because it's dangerous, Giuliani was America's mayor. Now people are saying Cuomo's America's governor. What baggage does Cuomo potentially have in his past that could impact his future politically? It's a great question, Bob. And 
watching Governor Cuomo, you see echoes of his father. I am Italian and Catholic. And you see Mario Cuomo, his late father, was this famous liberal hero, governor of New York, who almost ran for president in 1992. Mario Cuomo had the nickname uh, Hamlet on the Hudson because he always seemed like he was about to run for president and then backed away from the idea. But he, he was a national figure. He gave the keynote uh, at the Democratic National uh, Convention back in the mid-1980s. And, and you see in Andrew Cuomo, someone who has that oratorical ability, like his father, the ability to tell a story, to inject compassion into the way he speaks. But to your latter point, there is a reputation um, around Cuomo that he has a reputation of being prickly, of being uh, a bit tough on people. And he's not beloved in New York politics. He's seen as someone who's very powerful, to be sure, but he's also someone who has enemies and he has allies as well, but he has enemies. And uh, that side of Cuomo isn't getting a lot of attention for understandable reasons. He's out front as the, the face of his beleaguered state during this crisis. But if he ever does move forward uh, in national politics, that side of Cuomo uh, will will certainly be part of the conversation as well. Uh, but he is someone who continues to win in New York, and he knows how to run a state government. And a lot of Democrats are looking at him and saying, if not 2020, maybe 2024, uh, he's, if management and experience through crisis becomes a calling card for national politicians in a new kind of way post-coronavirus, whenever that glorious post-coronavirus moment is, uh, Cuomo will be positioned, well-positioned, to be a national politician. But you're right about Giuliani because he was on the cover of Time Magazine, America's Mayor, Man of the Year, and everyone wants to celebrate people when they're leading in times of crisis. And, uh, but politicians, as someone who covers them every day, they have uh, many sides. They're complicated figures. And to just define Giuliani through 9-11 or Cuomo through coronavirus, it leaves a lot of those stories about those men and those kind of leaders on the side. And they're, they're, the portrait should be fuller than just their leadership during a crisis. Well, Bob, thank you again for gracing us with your presence and your wit and your insight. We are so much better for it. We will do this again, and we will see each other in person when we get on the other side of this. Bob, if Red Rocks goes on as planned, I may just have to fly out there and do a podcast with you. Please, please, please. All right. Let's try to look forward to something good. That's right. Thank you. Mark Brownstein, welcome to The Politics of Truth. Thank you very much. Glad to be here with you, Bob. Well, Mark, uh, looking at your schedule, and, and uh, this is this is Thursday. This will probably air on, on I, I suspect, Tuesday or Wednesday. This is Thursday. Uh, you're supposed to be at the Capitol Theater in Port Chester. That is correct. Yeah, I was supposed to be flying in from Iceland yesterday. Um, now that you mention it, I haven't had a chance to even really think about the fact that I was supposed to be in Iceland last week. Um, the last week and a half have been a complete blur for me, and I haven't really had a chance to look at anything, including go outside or or check social media or really, I couldn't tell you what's going on in the news right now. I heard that a stimulus package got passed uh, yesterday. 
Um, I haven't had a chance to look through it. And that's a very, very unique situation for somebody like myself, who's a, generally speaking, a busy musician, but nonetheless, a touring musician, which affords uh, me lots of free time. I'll, I'll tell you, and and you say you haven't been on social media or outside. I'm going to venture to say that most people over the past two weeks have done nothing but be on social media or be outside, because that's really the only thing uh, available to to most of us these days in this COVID lockdown. But you never yeah. miss an opportunity, Mark. I, I was just saying when we got on the call, like, I don't know you very well. We have met. But what I know about you is you never miss an opportunity and you are always out there doing new things. For example, you're the co-founder of Headcount. Correct. Uh, I think that in late 2004, I guess, when my co-founder, Andy Bernstein, called um, and the first thing he said, I think before he really even had the idea of what we were going to do was he said, you're in a very unique position as a touring musician. You have an incredible network available to you of both fans and of other people in the music industry, managers, agents, other famous musicians and the times were weird at that time. We were on our way to heading to war in Iraq, and there was a general sense that maybe that wasn't the right thing to do in response to 9/11. And they were, and the, the uh, they, the administration at the time, was trying to repeatedly pound you with this idea that 9/11 and Saddam Hussein and Al Qaeda uh, were um were somehow all connected. Um, and if you had done just the slightest modicum of research on it, you would realize that what was happening was the administration was using 9-11 as a reason to convince the general public that going to war with Iraq, which was basically finishing the job on the Persian Gulf War um, from 12 years earlier or whatever, a decade earlier, that these things were all connected and they were they had been waiting for an event that was so big that they would be able to pull the wool over the public's eyes and and go ahead and 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 get a congressional approval on invading Iraq which is something that had pre they had predetermined before 9/11 that they wanted to do so uh, I had done a little bit of research on that, and I found the project for the New American Century, which was a document that was made by the neocons, you know, Rumsfeld and Wolfowitz and mm -hmm. Bush and all of these guys 10 years earlier, explaining that they wanted to stabilize the Middle East or whatever. But really what it was was about Middle Eastern resources, i.e. oil. And so and I'm not a conspiracy theorist, per se. The, this is a document that was publicly available to read, the, the PNAC documents. So when I saw the PNAC document, I got furious that this wasn't public knowledge, that there was this thing that they had predetermined. They actually said the only way that they could convince the public to go um, to war in Iraq would have been if there was some sort of Pearl Harbor style event in the United States. And when 9-11 happened, they immediately snapped into action, knowing that they had their Pearl Harbor style event, and they started to, you know, drum the beat for war. And so I kind of had a feeling like something has to be done here. We have to do something. And when Andy called me and was like, we, we have to do something with your network. And I was like, I'm in whatever it is. And then Andy went home and he kind of thought, what can we do? What can we do? And he devised this idea that we wanted to do something nonpartisan. We didn't want to be divisive. We didn't want to divide the fans. We wanted to bring people together. We wanted to be able to reach out to musicians on both sides of the aisle. You know, not every band is is on one side or, or the other. And, and we chose voter registration, a nonpartisan voter registration effort at concerts. Um, and ever since then, uh, we've been doing that and it's been growing. And now 16 years in headcount is, I believe the preeminent voter registration organization in the music scene and is just doing amazing, amazing work. Uh, there's, they've expanded out of our jam band scene several years ago to where now 
no, whether it's Billie Eilish or whoever were out there and were working um, in the field. And, you know, Ariana Grande was our, maybe our biggest artist of the year. And, uh, and seeing the organization that we started out on a pop tour, like an Ariana Grande tour and seeing the mainstream 15, 16 and 17 year olds finding out about registering to vote and political engagement. Uh, that's, you know, that's like the culmination of 16 years of work behind the scene of, you know, putting together something that can handle um, on a foundational level, on an infrastructural level, being out at a, at a Ariana Grande tour with 20,000 kids every night. And it's just, it's incredible what Andy has accomplished as the executive director of the organization. Uh, that's Andy Bernstein and, and um, Pete Shapiro from uh, the Capitol Theater and the Brooklyn Bowl and Wetlands and the Jammies and the serial jam band entrepreneur Pete Shapiro is now the chairman of the board and he's uh, his reaches beyond what anybody's reach you could ever imagine the reach of a board member of your organization being and um you know up until two weeks ago when the coronavirus um, epidemic started to really take shape in the united states headcount was rolling along and on on the way to you know possibly the biggest year or definitely the biggest year that we were ever going to have so then let me ask you um first how much growth with headcount did you guys see from the time you started to 2016 versus the growth that the organization has seen from 2016 to 2020 i don't know how to quantify that but it's been explosive in the last couple of years and so part of that is a response to donald trump being the president you know what i mean there's just the resistance is active in every way, shape, or form. And, you know, I'm weary to speak about it that way because we are nonpartisan and we remain nonpartisan and headcount is not the resistance. Headcount is is the no organization for political engagement um, across the board. But when you get into a situation where the entire country is engaged, then naturally an organization like ours is going to start exploding. So how do you convince conservative bands? And I would think maybe in the country world, you'll see more of that, but more conservative bands uh, that have, uh, say, red state, just, and this is, I hate stereotyping or generalizing, but let's just do it for the sake of example. Uh, how, how does Headcount convince um a band from a red state, they know they've got a lot of Trump supporters or Republicans in their demographic. How do you convince them to become a part of Headcount? Well, first and foremost, if you're in a conservative band and you're in a red state or, or your main touring area is in a red state and an organization came to you asking to help engage your fans and register your fans to vote, which is what we do. And they felt like maybe we were a liberal leaning group or we're a group that was supported by more liberal leaning artists. And in general, I think more artists are liberal leaning, which which is where there would be that sense that there's bias, which there isn't. If you were to get to know the people on the inside of Headcount are actually quite moderate. And Andy, especially himself, it would not be self-serving to say, well, we don't want to take part in that. Because if you're a conservative band and you want to engage your fan base to get out and vote, you're going to want to help register them and you're going to want to engage them in the political system. So not taking part in what we're doing is only going to not help the conservatives uh, in, in whatever their mission is, first and foremost. It would make sense for them to want to to utilize the infrastructure that that we've built up to engage their constituency. So it's still a really hard sell, you know. Yeah. it's a really hard sell. And I, I, what another thing that I would say is, for all of the years leading up to 2012, we were operating in the shadow of Rock the Vote. Now, Rock the Vote wasn't doing what we were doing. They weren't at the concerts anymore. In 2004, when we started, Dave Matthews came on board with headcount because rock the vote had left a gap by stopping um their field outreach 
You know, we, we, when we reached out to Dave Matthews, the first thing that he said was, oh, this is great, you know, because I used to work with Rock the Boat, but they're not paying to put people out on the road with us anymore. And we said, you know, well, we're a grassroots organization. That is exactly what we do. And that's how we built was that they kind of backed off and left a big gap in the sector. But in terms of the public perception, as we were trying to build headcount, it was hard to break free of the, well, what about Rock the Vote? You know what I mean? They're the big music organization for registering people to vote. And they still operated online and had huge, huge, huge operating budgets for advertising and huge, huge sponsorships, MTV, et cetera. So many of our meetings around the first eight to 10 years of headcount were based around how do we change that perception when we know that what we're doing is we're out in the field actually doing the work. We're actually registering hundreds of thousands of kids out here in the field, but there's still this perception when we go to press and when we go to foundations and we're trying to raise money that we're the small organization and they're the big dogs. And so we spent years trying to overcome that. And just by staying in the race and staying focused and continuing to do what we do best, that aspect we overcame. And actually now MTV is sponsoring headcount. You know what I mean? And yeah. they're one of our big money sponsors. And so this is an uphill battle. And I think that when you look at how we've done that in terms of changing that perception, we'll look at what you're talking about with the conservative acts and the conservative bands. And we look forward into the future saying that this is still an area where we can improve. There's still a lot of ground to gain here in terms of the perception of the way that people on that side of the political spectrum look at us and how they appear. And we know that by staying focused and doing what we do best and sticking with it in the long term, that we will eventually get to where we envision this being. First, you have to be able to visualize things. You know that as an artist. As an artist, nothing's going to happen if you can't see it happening. You know, yeah. whether whether it's, you know, getting that first big gig or getting to play in the arena that you wanted to play in or whatever it is. Yeah. If you can't visualize this, then you're not getting there. So we're able to kind of see where we want to be in the future. But uh, but stay focused on where we are now. And and I think that little by little perception changes. So how is Headcount adapting to life in the age of covid life in the age of no concerts? Well, that's a really great question that I don't think necessarily I'm the best person to prepare to answer that question. But, uh, you know, a better question for me would be how are live musicians adapting to life in the age of coronavirus? How, so because how is that's what I've been focused on since the day this hit. So then let me ask, how is Mark Brownstein adjusting to life off the stage for the time being? Yeah, well, on Thursday of two weeks ago, this is two weeks ago today, we were supposed to be playing three nights at the Fillmore in uh, Philadelphia. And we had just we had canceled some shows in January because I had an, uh, an emergency eye surgery that had to be done right away or I would have gone blind. So it was a really, really bad time to be canceling more concerts for a band in our size group. So we got to the show on Thursday we were all set up and ready to go. And we knew that most likely Friday and the Saturday shows were not going to happen. We could tell that it, things were progressing so rapidly two weeks ago from the Monday to the Thursday. It was like a total paradigm shift in the way that the whole entire country was operating. And on Thursday, before they had kind of locked anything down in Pennsylvania, there was only two cases confirmed in all of Philadelphia, but my county had already been locked down. There was an there was an outbreak in the county that I live in, and they had kind of closed everything except for all um, essential businesses. And they hadn't put the stay at home order in place yet, but we could see where it was going. You know, if you just had to look out to Italy, to China, to South Korea to see where this country was headed. And I showed up at the venue and I looked at the guys and I was like, hey, guys, this doesn't feel good to me. I don't know how many people are even going to show up. I mean, we had thousands of tickets sold, but. I was envisioning that most of those people were not feeling safe coming to the venue. And so uh, John 
our guitarist showed up a couple minutes after me and he came in and, you know, he had just flown in from LA and he was not feeling good about the fact that he had to leave his new baby and his uh, girlfriend out in LA and get on a plane in a mask and goggles to come out here and potentially put people at risk. And I looked at him and I was like, are you feeling good about this? And he's like, not really. I was like, listen, man, this is basically up to you and I right now to make this call and to be mature and to do what we know is right. My gut is that putting on a concert tonight is putting our fans at risk. And he said to me, my issue is if somebody does come here and somebody does get sick and they trace it back into our concert, I'm not going to be able to live with myself knowing that we could have prevented somebody getting sick by not doing this. And we are the ultimate preachers, or at least I am, of public health over corporate profits. And I looked at him and I was like, man, I've been preaching public health over corporate profits for years and years and years. I think it's time to walk the walk, you know? And he said, let's do it. And we called our manager and we canceled, we postponed, everybody says postpone. We postponed those shows and immediately postponed the Capitol Theater shows because the new Rochelle outbreak is 10 miles from Capitol Theater. And we just can see this isn't going away. This is getting worse. It's going to get way worse before it gets better. And so let's just shut the business down for now and we'll figure the rest out where the money is going to come from, how we're going to pay for insurance. I had an inkling that insurance companies were going to just let people defer until this was over. Possibly mortgage companies would do the same. I, I was like, we can't really worry about money right now. What we need to be worrying about is safety of our fans. And they can't evict or foreclose on everybody in the country at the same time. So let's just take some deep breaths and do something else. So we, we booked a studio for that weekend. We have all these new songs. We went into Milk Boy Studios in Philadelphia and we banged out five songs, like 10 versions of five different songs. I was not even feeling good about being there. I was, you know, Clorox wiping everything and staying as far as I went as I could from everybody. I was already weeks before that prepared for quarantine. I had one of my brother's friends works for Department of Homeland Security and he clued us in weeks before this hit and was like, y'all need to go and spend a thousand dollars on food and get some toilet paper and all the things that you're seeing aren't available out in Italy right now, get them now before this is an issue. I felt like an idiot, actually. I was in like Acme up here, our, our supermarket with a full, full thing with all kinds of canned food and, you know, like a big thing of toilet paper. And like everyone was looking at me like I was crazy. Like you could tell from how I was shopping that I was preparing for a quarantine. And I was clearly the only person doing this. This is three weeks before anybody else was getting prepared for this. And just because I had an inside track from somebody in the government. But my brother, I was like, kind of thought like, oh, my brother's kind of a conspiracy theory type of a guy over here. But he was like, dude, I'm not kidding with you. You need to prepare for this. Well, the day before, and I don't want to scare my fans here, but the day before the film war, I got another phone call and it said, call your brother and tell him to prepare not to be working for a year. And I that one scared that wow. one scared me a little bit. You know, but if you look at China, they're four months into this and they're nowhere near open concerts and mass gatherings back up. Right. I figure that like, that's going to be the last thing that we get back to, right? We are the first out of work and the last back to work. You got Camp Bisco, yeah. right? In July? Yeah, we do. Are you guys already, because I'll tell you for the Avid Brothers, we've canceled through May, but now we're talking about, I mean, right now everything's on for June, but, you know, everybody's looking down the line and saying, okay, if we have to move this June date, we can do this in September, we can do this. What, what are you guys planning for Camp Bisco, and, and when would you make the call? I am not really fit to be the one speaking about that, but what I'll say is we have shows at the end of May. And they haven't been moved yet, but I know that they're going to get moved and it would be ridiculously tone deaf to act like they are going to happen at this point. Listen, if something crazy changes and the curve starts to flatten, great. But if we immediately go back into mass gatherings, it's just going to start to spread immediately again without a vaccine. You don't have to be a PhD to understand this. You know, this is an extremely, extremely, extremely contagious virus that causes people to get very, very sick and die at a much higher rate than other viruses of its type. So what I would say is 
I am prepared to not work for a year. You know, I've been taught to prepare for the worst and hope for the best. I am hoping for the best. We haven't really addressed Camp Bisco publicly, but I know that we're looking at other dates for everything that's on the books, everything that's on the books. Now, if you know anything about festivals, there's a limited amount of resources for festivals, right? Equipment, staff, everybody works at the same festivals. So now what just happened is every festival got moved into September and October. Coachella, Stagecoach, Bonnaroo, everything has been moved into September and October. And from what I can tell from some of the people who I'm friends with and who I'm working with on my newest venture and whatever, there's a scramble for these festivals to be able to staff themselves. And people are looking states and states away in order to be able to find the equipment that they need, you know, staging, lighting, it's all being grabbed. And a lot of festivals are not going to exist this year because of that one aspect. So forget the forget the virus. If it if all's well with the virus, there you can't just move every festival into the same month. It doesn't work, you know? So listen, hundreds and hundreds of festivals have happened, you know, have appeared over the last bunch of years, whereas it used to be five to 10 over the summer that we could rely on, there's going to be a paradigm shift in the way that the whole festival business is, you know? So, but for me, I just started to think about what am I going to do over the next couple of weeks to ensure that I can take care of my family over the next couple of months. And so last Sunday, I just took a leap of faith and went on Facebook and asked if anybody wanted to take bass lessons. And I was overwhelmed with the response. I got 50 people in my DMs immediately. I got another 30 moved over into my email and about 20 answered a survey that I sent out, which was intended to weed out the riffraff a little bit. And uh, I don't think I can handle more than 20 hours of lessons in a week. And, and, and that would be kind of a nice stopgap for taking care of my family. So I started administrating this on last Tuesday. I got to where I was scheduling lessons. So tell us about it. Tell what what is it called and how can people take a lesson? I mean, I might need to get a lesson myself. <laughs> or give a lesson better yet. So listen, and you have a lot to offer. So how we got to that moment was I started to administrate the lessons portion, scheduling, payment, figuring out how to use Zoom or what platform I was going to use and testing platforms with friends of mine. And I realized that the administration side of giving lessons was more work than the lessons themselves. And so on Wednesday, I've had two questions. Does giving music lessons online scale, first and foremost? Pete Shapiro from, you know, the the famous Pete Shapiro. Oh, yes. The the famous Pete Shapiro. Always says in our every headcount meeting that we ever have, he's like, hey, does that anybody has an idea that he stops you and he goes, how does it scale? You know? And if it doesn't scale, let's move on to the next idea. So I said that to myself. His voice popped into my head and I was like, how does this scale? And I was like, huh, maybe I could create a site that fixes all the problem. You know, the problem I was having was that I couldn't, musicians are going to have a hard time administrating. I had already double booked three lessons. I already did one lesson and forgot to get paid. Uh, I was making all these Zoom links and sending them out manually one by one. I had gotten to the beginning of one lesson and realized that I hadn't even created a Zoom link for the person. And then I had to email them, hope that they were sitting on their email so that they could get it. And I had lessons back to back. Everything about it was a mess. And so on Wednesday night, I kind of my idea for what I created, or I want to say we created because it's called Live Lesson Masters. And at Live Lesson Masters, there are no eyes. We're we're a team, and it's we talk in the we always. It's like a we situation here. We, myself, and Alicia Carlin, who's my partner in it. Alicia Carlin's the VP of Global Touring and Talent at AEG. I called her on Wednesday night just to talk and tell her that she, this thing I had seen her do on Instagram TV was hilarious, and I just wanted to congratulate her on being so funny. And she was like, "What are you doing?" And I was like, "Oh, I'm giving lessons. It's such a mess." But earlier today, I kind of had this idea of making a site that was similar to Cameo or similar to Masterclass, but it was one-on-one live lessons. And the whole thing would be administrated. People would have calendars and you can go on and click on the calendar. And then there would be a paywall there and they could pay right on the site. 
and you wouldn't have to worry about that. And then it would schedule the meeting with a Zoom link if possible. I didn't even know if the tech was there. We would we would have an auto generate these video conferencings and send them directly to each uh, to to the people. And you know that all of those sides we had it we didn't figure out right away. But Alicia was like, "Dude, this is sick. Call me in the morning." So we went to bed. I woke up on Thursday and we started. We got to work. We went on GoDaddy. We picked Live Lesson Masters as the name. We got the URL. We got a graphic designer to make us a logo. And by that was at 10 a.m. on Thursday. And by 2 p.m. on Thursday, we had the bare bones were were built of the site. And I went into A&R mode and started calling all of my friends and some people who aren't my friends and just musicians. And as and we set a deadline. We were like, the key here is we can't get mired in code. So we used existing code, you know, that you don't need code to build a website anymore. You don't need a developer if you want to make something happen fast. You can just go onto one of the sites that have all of these, you know, pre-written code. And so we took a template website and we put it together and we got into what we're really good at, which is the A&R side and the re- the outreach. And, and I started calling my friends and saying, hey, I got this idea. If you want to give lessons, I've already booked 20 lessons for next week. Um, I, everyone's out there trying to figure out how to monetize streaming content, streaming concerts, getting, you know, getting in sync from different studios around the country and coming up with new content. And I get it. We're musicians. We make music. And if we could figure out how to quickly stream our music at a pace that was going to create enough money to actually take care of everybody in our business, that would be great. But what we've done over the last 10 years is we've trained our fans to think that getting music online, whether it's regular music, you know, and, and the audio form or video is free. We don't charge for our streams. We do our streams for free on, on YouTube and we bring a full HD camera team with us. We have a whole second crew doing streaming for the Disco Biscuits when we go out and we make it all available for free in real time streaming. So my thought was, for a band like Disco Biscuits that's trained their fans to feel like the music part of it is free outside of the live concert, it's going to be really hard to monetize that right now. And I don't think that it's going to make enough money to take care of our crew or take care of even any of the band members. So I called Robert Walter from the Grey Boy All-Stars. I actually tweeted at him when he said, hey, now would be a great time to buy merchandise and, 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 and the whatnot. And I said, hey, man. You want to give some lessons? And he was like, oh, this is a great idea. And by Monday, we had a site built, functional, with 25 musicians, four yogis, and a top chef on there. And we put it live. I sent a letter to Bob Lefsitz to say, hey, I know that this is the kind of stuff that you're interested in, but music. here's one way that musicians are pivoting right now to leverage their talent into actual income and more importantly, to engage the fans in a way that we haven't engaged them before one-on-one on video streams and give a little bit of light. We're shining a little bit of light both on the artist side and on the fan side. And from last Thursday, which is now seven days ago till now, I have not left my desk. I've given like 10 lessons and every other single moment has been on the administrative side, onboarding artists, uh, recruiting artists, and now handling the influx of literally hundreds of creators that are asking to use our technology that we built to help them teach their own lessons. So I I didn't realize how quickly it was going to scale. Like, does it scale was the question I asked. I didn't realize that we were going to, in four days, build something that was going to touch hundreds of people in such a quick way we launched on monday and we've sold um nearly 200 lessons in the first two days that the site was up one of our artists brendan bayless from umphreys mcgee has sold over 40 lessons in the last two days and and you know that's real money for him and it's real excitement for the fans and I, i i'm more at this point have gotten moved emotionally by the fan part of it it's less about the money and more about the fans. Right. This one L this this gives the fans and the musician because it 
that interaction with the fan feeds us both, right? No doubt. Right. You have you have the person who has a perception of the person on stage. You have the person on stage who 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 sees a mass in front of them, and so the person on stage gets to see the individual, uh, and the and the individual gets to see the musician, uh, and they get to to share their common humanity and their their common desire to learn and their common love of music. I commend you, Mark, and uh, I think this is going to be a very successful project. Thank you. Great for the musicians, great for the fans. I know you have a lesson in five minutes. I got a lesson in five minutes. I can't wait to give it. When a lesson gets booked, you get a text message and an email, and in the email, there's a pre-lesson survey questionnaire. You just click add to iCalendar, and I just click on my lesson on the iCalendar, and the questionnaire comes up right there in your calendar, and I get to see right now that this character that I'm about to give a lesson to is interested in learning one, two, three, four, five, six Disco Biscuit songs. And it makes me really excited to be like, oh man, I'm getting here with a guy who really knows what I do. And and I know that this is gonna be an incredibly special experience for both of us. And this is happening right now. Joyful, incredible experiences where you get where where we're all getting to um, expand on our creative side. And there's this whole crazy thing is happening out there that I, I really honestly don't have time to pay attention to. And that's a blessing right now. It's a blessing. Mark Brownstein bringing light in dark times. Thank you for being on the politics of truth and uh, best of luck with everything. And hopefully we'll see you on the stage before too long. All right. Take care, Bob. Politics of Truth is brought to you by Osiris Media, produced by Bob Crawford and Adam Kaplan. Our executive producer is RJB. The program was mixed and mastered by Brad Stratton, artwork by Mark Dowd. For other great podcasts that connect you to the artists and music you love, please visit OsirisPod.com.